Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. Today's guest is Rebecca Flowers. She's worked as an SLP in inpatient rehab since completing her CFY at a skilled nursing facility. She began in adults and now works in pediatric inpatient rehab as the senior rehab SLP. She's passionate about neurological rehab and children with complex medical needs, as well as clinical education and promoting interdisciplinary care. As part of an interdisciplinary team, Rebecca worked to implement a program to promote consistent care of patients with severe brain injury across the care continuum from acute care through outpatient. When not at work, you can find her singing loudly in her car, hanging with her family, or walking her three dogs. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients, to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Hello, Rebecca. Hello. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm excited to be here. Yay! <laughs> all right. Uh, tell the people who you are. Well, I'm Rebecca Flowers. I am a, currently I'm a pediatric SLP at an inpatient rehab unit at a major children's hospital. Um, but I have been working in inpatient rehab primarily for more than a decade now. Um, I did my CFY at a SNF, And then as soon as I finished my CF, I moved on to adult IPR and acute care, but mostly IPR and then transitioned to peds and kind of haven't looked back because peds are a little less whiny than adults, but <laughs> you know, I, I love them all. I've got that really great problem in our um, profession where I like birth through, you know, centenarians. So yes, yes. like them all. <laughs> yes. And I just think what you do is so fascinating and phenomenal and 
all the all the things. I hate what you do, but I love what you do as well. So I always say we're not good people to need, but we're good people if you need us. Yes. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. All right. So what what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk about, well, they asked me to talk about um, the JFK coma recovery scale, but you can't really talk about the CRS without talking about disorders of consciousness. Okay. Because that's really what it's meant to measure. So we're going to talk about, it sounds terribly depressing and boring, but it's really not, I swear. Um, (laughs) We're going to talk about disorders of consciousness and how you can kind of measure progress and how you treat them, because that's really hard. Um, And sometimes it's hard to think of even where to start. So that's that's what we're going to talk about is those really low level kids and adults. Yeah. I think like the million dollar question is like, is this really what SLPs SLPs really do this. We do. We do. We have a whole program for it. So amazing. It's from kids through adults in my hospital system. We have a whole disorders of consciousness program. So amazing. Okay. All right. Where should we start? Well, I think we should start with explaining what the JFK is. Okay. Sounds (laughs) good. So um, the JFK is called the JFK Coma Recovery Scale is called that because it was uh, developed at JFK. Uh, which is the um, Rehabilitation Institute at JFK Hospital and at the Medical Center. So on a side note, there's a really good documentary on HBO called Coma, and it takes place at that center. And it really delves into like disorders of consciousness. So if anybody wants to go watch a great documentary, it's an HBO documentary called Coma. It's fantastic. But, and you can actually see them kind of administering the JFK some during it as well. The, the common thing, like when I have students or when I'm training a newer clinician on the JFK, it, it looks very overwhelming because it's very thick. It's got a lot of parts, you know, it has six different subtests in it. So You've got your auditory function scale, the visual function scale, motor function scale, oral motor and verbal function function scale, communication scale, and arousal scale. Um, Those are the six that therapists are really going to be administering. And that sounds like a lot. Um, And then you start looking at the directions and stuff, and it seems, it does, it seems like a lot. But when you really start to delve into it, you realize that it's really very easy to give and... um, it has really good inter-rater reliability. So nine out of 10 people rate it the same way every time. Um, so it's really good. And it's it's good for those. So most of the traditional rehab measures like FIMS, the functional independent measures and things like that just don't capture this population. So somebody, um, and I'm speaking of FIMS because in pediatrics, we're still using FIMS, even though in adults, they've moved on past the FIMS, but um, somebody might come in as all ones on the FIM measure. And somebody who has a disorder of consciousness might leave as all ones. So according to that, they haven't made any progress. Whereas the therapists and their family and everybody else is like, they've made monumental progress. And so using a scale like the JFK, can really help you tease apart those incremental changes that people make as they're emerging from their disorder of consciousness. So you can come in, you know, usually somebody's not going to come into rehab in a coma. They're, that's when they're still in the ICU. They're, you know, that's they're still being more medically managed at that point. But you can get people who come into rehab 
who are in a vegetative state um, or in a minimally conscious state. And those people, it's, they kind of wax and wane and you can have people, it's kind of, you know, if you think about the Rancho Los Mingos scale, these are the people in one to three levels, one to three in the ranchos. And so these are people who are not necessarily consistently responding to stimuli. They're not really, they're certainly not making volitional choices. They're not, you know, they're not necessarily reaching for things. They're not, they're certainly not speaking because one of the distinguishing factors, of course, is verbal communication. That's, you cannot have verbal communication and be in that low level of brain injury. Um, so, you know, as SLPs, that's a big, like, well, what do we do? Right. <laughs> and so, so yeah. yeah so, <laughs> now what? Um, and I know like the first DOC, which is what, you know, shorthand for disorders of consciousness, the first DOC patient I saw, I was like, oh crap. Like, what am I going to do with this person? Like, yeah. And so the JFK really helped me because it, it, like any other test that we give, any other scale that we give, yes, it absolutely identifies weaknesses, but it also shows you those glimmers of strength. And so, you know, you might have, I'm going to say kid a lot because I work with kids now, but you might have a kid who, you know, and we've all had those patients, right? Where you're like, I swear to God, he's in there. Yeah. I can't yeah. tell you why, but I know he's in there. Yeah. He just can't get out because of his dystonia or, you know, whatever motor issues they're having, whatever. And, and, you know, this might be somebody with thalamic damage. You know, I've worked with people with bilateral thalamic damage and that's what regulates consciousness, you know? So it's because the corticothalamic pathway, that's what regulates that. And so if you've got somebody, you know, they're just fighting to stay awake. Like it's amazing that they can open their eyes. And so they're still fighting that where, but when they are awake, you see those little glimmers, but it's not something you can measure. So that's what the scale like this is really good for is you can, you know, you, you might go through and a lot of times, like everything else, the motor stuff comes back first, right? Those PTs, I swear they have, you know, <laughs> we, they just look like rock stars. Those people are running out of rehab and I'm like, they can kind of talk now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but they, that, but so a lot of times what you'll see is the motor function is coming back first. So what we do, and I know a lot of places do this is we actually will uh, administer this weekly as a team because we want to make sure that everyone is seeing the same things. And then you can have that really good iterator reliability there, but then you also have people at different vantage points in the room. And so, you know, we'll, we'll be in our low stem treatment room doing this. And so in there, you might have the doctor, the PT, the OT, me, SLV, might have students in there. You might have a nurse in there. Most people are just standing silently in the background, but everybody's observing and say, oh, hey, I saw her do this just now, or that kind of thing. And usually what we'll do before we even start administering this is you stand back, because a lot of these patients will have like a dystonic movement pattern. And what you don't want to do is you don't want to mistake that for a purposeful 
reaction to something. Yes, exactly. And so you kind of stand back and you watch them for a couple of minutes. Super awkward. Um, Everybody just stands in silence staring at the patient. But um, you kind of record, you know, like, and then you say like, okay, I'm noticing that he's always, you know, his right arm's coming up and going down and coming up and going down. And that's just kind of a rhythmic thing. And that's just what his brain is doing right now. Whereas, you know, the other three limbs are still that kind of thing. So maybe if we're going to do something, we're going to leave the right arm out of it. And we're going to kind of concentrate on the other three limbs, that kind of thing, so that you can hopefully get what is more of a purposeful reaction to something. So we go through and we split it up between PTOT and speech. Um, God bless our doctors. They're like, you guys are the experts. Go do your thing. Um, And so at my hospital, speech does the auditory function scale, oromotor, um, and the communication. OT does the visual function scale and the motor, and then uh, PT does the motor function scale and everyone does the arousal scale because you just want to make sure that everybody's on the same page in terms of where their arousal is. So their arousal, you've got zero is they're not arousable at all. One is eye-opening with stimulation, two is eye-opening without stimulation, and then three is attention. And attention, there's not a great definition of consciousness. You would think by now we would have a definition of consciousness. Don't have a good one. But what is kind of generally agreed upon is that in order to be conscious, you have to be able to attend to something. And that's a lot of times where you start to see these uh, patients emerge is all of a sudden you're like, wait a second, I think he's watching TV right now. You know, (laughs) he's not just, is he looking, you know, and then that's when you can kind of start to see that come out. But so for the communication is tough for us. I'll touch on the ones that kind of apply mostly to us. But um, so you've got none, which is pretty, you know, self-explanatory. You've got non-functional, but intentional, So um, someone might be vocalizing, they might be even verbalizing, but it's not a functional kind of situation. And then you've got functional and accurate. And that's, again, when you're starting to see these patients truly emerge from like a minimally conscious state into the post-traumatic confusional state and beyond that. Um, Again, if we're looking at the ranchos, Los Amigos, you're getting out of that three and into the four and five and six and beyond. So the oromotor and verbal is, so you've got none. You have one is um, oral reflexive movement. So you stick a uh, tongue depressor in their mouth and if they clamp down on it, you get that tonic bite. There are one. Then you've got vocalization and oral movement and then intelligible verbalization, um, which could be in the communication scale too, but, you know, it all kind of goes together. And then the uh, auditory function scale, what you're really looking for is, do they startle? Do they localize? Can they reproduce a movement to command? And do they have a consistent movement to command? So for the three, you might get somebody who, follows a command one out of five times, right? But for the four, they are consistently following those commands. Um, And it's the thing I like about the JFK, and there are other scales out there as well, but I really like the JFK because you can kind of mold it to your patient. So, you know, if you, you can kind of say, okay, 
great. You know, they have basal ganglia damage, so their arms are just stuck. So, so let's have them kick a ball instead. You know, there are options there for following commands and that kind of thing. And they talk about the limitations. You know, that's something that you have to keep in mind when you're working with this population is brain damage does not just cause cognitive damage. It can cause severe, severe physical deficits as well. And if you have a severe enough brain injury that you are classified as having a disorder of consciousness, chances are you've got some pretty severe physical deficits as well. And so, you know, one of the things you have to tease out is, is this a disorder of consciousness or is this patient locked in? You know, and that's a very important thing because we actually, I've, I've done the JFK on a patient and said, oh no, he's there. And because all of a sudden you realize like he could move his eyes and he could track and he could do all the things we're asking him to do with his eyes. Yeah. But his body was just beyond his control. Meanwhile, you know, they, he had been, labeled as a vegetative state until he got to rehab, which is why these patients here's, I have so many soapboxes. Here's one, which is why these patients should go to rehab and not be sent to like custodial care, right? Like they need to come to rehab. They need that really intensive three plus hours a day of interdisciplinary care, because with patients like this, it really is all hands on deck, you know, and you really need that team approach. You really need people who are experts in this, who have worked with people like this before and who work together seamlessly. So yeah, like you want a dedicated team who is that patient's team. So that's off the soapbox, but that's That's one of them. (laughs) Amazing. I I love it. I love it. Yeah. So that's kind of the JFK in a nutshell. You can look up, um, I think Craig Hospital has a pretty good they have a, a very good, I mean, it's Craig, demonstration of using it and like talking through the different levels and things like that. So if people want to like go and see it being administered, they can look that up. And it's it's really, it makes a lot more sense when you watch it with patients. Yeah. So, but it's definitely worth looking into. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. So um, within disorders of consciousness, like I mentioned before, you have coma, you have vegetative state, minimally conscious state, and post-traumatic confusional state. And that those are kind of how you merge. You, you can go from coma to post-traumatic confusional state. You don't have to go through all of the levels, but those you will frequently see patients kind of work their way through those levels as they emerge from their disorder of consciousness. So um, In a coma, like I said, they're not usually in rehab. They're usually still in the ICU. These are people with, they have no sleep-wake cycles. That's the hallmark of a coma. They have no reaction to pain. They have no reaction to stimuli of any sort. Um, And I will sometimes have uh, people ask me, well, how do you treat someone in a coma as a speech therapist? And the answer is you don't. Yeah. (laughs) that's the short answer. You know, the evidence for coma stim is that there's really no evidence for coma stim. You know, it's, you really have to wait. I think that sometimes when you hear about coma stim, you know, air quotes there, it's really somebody who's in a vegetative state, not someone who's in a true coma. So, um, so since that has not much to do with us, we'll move on to vegetative state. So vegetative state, you can have periods of wakefulness. Um, this might be somebody who, 
you know, they have their eyes open some, and then they're just really drowsy and they're kind of drifting back off and they're kind of coming in and out. They don't necessarily have a great sleep wake cycle, you know, night is day and day is night. And it really doesn't matter because they're really just fighting to stay awake at all. Again, cognitive function. There's not really measurable cognitive function at this point. They don't have for all intents and purposes, they don't have receptive and expressive language at this point either to truly be considered in a vegetative state. Now, a vegetative state is different from a persistent vegetative state, although there's some debate as to whether or not you can even call someone being in a vegetative state until they've gone like for 12 months after their injury, but that's, I'll let the academics fight that one out. But But um, so you've got, if somebody's in a vegetative state, they are not really responding to stimuli, but they are kind of awake. Um, They may have some startles. So you may start to see them have a startle response more to um, maybe visual threat, that kind of thing. And then maybe starting to get a little bit restless in bed. You might see them kind of just doing that non-purposeful movement in their bed, that kind of thing. And, you know, if you are working in inpatient rehab as an SLP, which is where a lot of these patients come, you also may see them in home care. That's another place where you may see these patients. And sometimes in, in a skilled nursing facility, but I feel like most of the time they're going to IPR. In adults, though, they might have a really short stay. Short Again, that's that'll be in air quotes because um, a short stay in peds is very different than a short stay in adults. But even if they have a six-week stay in adults, which is a long IPR stay in adults, that does not give their brain time to wake up. So they're still working through these stages by the time they're discharged. I know that our DOC program in, on the adult side works really hard on family training to get these families to take them home um, and really training these families to care for these patients at home with the hopes of them readmitting them when they have emerged from their disorder of consciousness. So that's the adult side in peds. We're very lucky because you can't just send them to a sniff. (laughs) Um, It's really, really nice. Um, And so like we might set an initial discharge date of 10 to 12 weeks for a kid who comes in like this, um, because that gives them a lot more time. And they chances are they've probably spent more time on the acute side of the hospital as well. So that being said, if you have someone come in in a vegetative state in an adult hospital, it's different than if you have a pediatric patient like that, because In the adult hospital, in both settings, you're going to be focusing a lot on caregiver training Um, because I think the, you know, our natural tendency when someone that we love has been injured in this capacity, we want to touch them, right? We want to rub their head. We want to talk to them. We want to play their favorite music. Everyone in non-COVID times wants to come visit them, right? Whereas... (laughs) You know, what they really need is they need it to be quiet and they need the shades open when it's daytime and they need it dark in the nighttime. We don't always do a great job of that in the hospital, but we're trying. We're get, I feel like we're, we're getting better in hospitals across the board. We're realizing, you know, what ICU syndrome is and that kind of thing. So I feel like we're getting better at that. 
so a lot of caregiver training, you know, we have signs we put up on the doors, one to two visitors at a time, you know, keep the lights low at night, make sure the TV is not on. If you need to have a conversation on your phone, take it outside of the room, that kind of thing. If, if they seem like they're agitated, feel free to calmly speak to them, tell them that they are safe, tell them that they're in the hospital, reorient them. And then, you know, there are some patients for whom a weighted blanket is very calming. There are some for whom being naked is calming. So it just depends on the patient. You have to really get to know the patient, you know, and in this state and, and into the minimally conscious state you too, you can get kind of that dysautonomic storming. And so you have to be very aware of, are they starting to get restless because they're getting hyperthermic? You know, do you, do we need to get some ice packs for them? Do we need a cool cloth for their forehead? That kind of thing. And just being very aware that their poor brain is going haywire and we need to, and you'll see it a lot when you've got, you know, wife or mom or whoever kissing all over their face, you know, and we know as SLPs, right. Those are the most sensitive parts. (laughs) Don't touch the face, like get away. But that's what we do. And, and it's so hard for loved ones to understand that they are the reason that their loved one is storming, that they are so overstimulated. And so providing, you have to be really good counselor and a really good gentle educator of families in these situations. So that's one part of what we do. The hands-on with the patient is a lot of just you have to be very patient <laughs> with these with these folks. Um, I remember sitting in a room for 45 minutes with a patient, just trying to get him to focus on a ball because I knew he could because he'd done it before. And so just trying and trying and try for, I mean, and I think we got, I think we got one in that 45 minute session. And it was a really good session because of that, because that meant that maybe he's coming out of that vegetative state. So that's really what you're looking for. But your sessions may look a lot like we're going to do, you know, we're going to try to look at this thing and then we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to, you know, lean you back in your tilt and space wheelchair and we're going to let you just kind of chill. And then we're going to set you back up and we're going to see if we can get kind of some response to a different kind of stimuli, that kind of thing. So you're just looking for any kind of consistent response to anything at that point. And bringing families in to those sessions, you have to know the families because it can send them over the edge when they see that, or it can help them understand and they can then see, oh, he's not completely, you know, he's he's not spiking a temperature. He's not, you know, he's calmer when he's in this quiet darker environment with, you know, so it's just, you have to know your families. You have, you have to be really good at reading people, which I feel like most SLPs are to be fair. So it's kind of what we do, but um, so that's the vegetative state. Again, it, it can be exhausting. Um, and I think that something that's really important to keep in mind here with the interdisciplinary care is checking in with your teammates and say, how are you guys doing? Because these can take a toll on you. You know, these can be really sad cases sometimes. And so you have to really check in. And when you've just spent, you know, 30, 45 minutes with a patient, just trying to get them to squeeze your finger, right? And sometimes they're not going to. That's really, you know, because we want to fix people, right? We want to make them better. And 
you know, we're not miracle workers. And sometimes too, the brain takes a long time. And something that, you know, it's taken me years to realize is just because they didn't squeeze my finger in that session doesn't mean they're not going to tomorrow. But that's hard, especially for younger clinicians and everything else. Not that I'm old, I'm very young. (laughs) That's not if you ask my daughter about my fashion sense, but that's a whole (laughs) different thing. But so those are our vegetative folks and they're, they're tricky and it's, you know, it's, it is hard, but it's, it's worthwhile when you start to see them emerge. Um, So when they get into that minimally conscious state, they're starting to be more awake. They're having to have longer periods of wakefulness and things like that. They're, they might have those glimmers that we were kind of talking about earlier of like, awareness of their environment. They're starting to kind of track more preferred, you know, they might track a loved one in the environment or in kids, you know, they might track an iPad with a preferred show on it, that kind of thing. That's when you start to see like, okay, she really does want to watch that TikTok video, you know, (laughs) TikTok's so therapeutic, let me tell you. (laughs) But, um, and that's when, you, you know, in the minimally conscious, you start to see, Again, it's inconsistent, but you start to see command following. And this is when it starts to get really fun, I think, because that's when you're like, okay, yes, we weren't wrong. They're in there. We're going to get them. You know, like that's when you really, and you can start to show the families too these little victories. Um, you know, that's one of my favorite things that somebody said about rehab is that it's not sexy. She's like, there's never going to be a reality show about rehab. Yeah. It's a great, it's it's a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Because it's just like, I might do, you know, proverbial cartwheel when my patient squeezed a switch for the first time, you know, and that's, it it doesn't sound like a lot, but you know, when this is a person who couldn't even stay awake two weeks ago, that's huge. So it's really exciting when that happens. Um, And this is kind of, you start to see that visual pursuit, you start to see them fighting. And this is when we can get a lot more therapeutic. Um, And in this stage, as the communication experts, you know, what does every family want? They want a yes and a no. They want to, they want to be able to ask their loved ones, are you in pain? Are you, you know, do you know who I am? Do you, all of those kinds of questions, they want to be able to communicate with their loved one and have them communicate back. Um, So in a minimally conscious state, you generally do not have much expressive language. You might have single words, but you might also not, especially depending on where their brain damage is. Again, if you have significant basal ganglia, they may not have the motor initiation for those fine motor movements that are needed for speech, but they might have some gross motor, you know, and so they might be able to reach for something. They might be able to do eye gaze for yes and no. And it's not going to look like a high tech eye gaze device yet, but it might be just holding up a red card and a green card and just practicing. And again, rehab is not sexy, you might do yes and no with red and green cards and eye gaze for 30 minutes straight. And you just, you know, in 
kids I love to, you know, is your favorite color poop brown, things like that, you know, <laughs> clear no yeah. answers. Um, but that's that's the key. They ha- you have to know the answers, but um, you also have to be, you know, I, feel, I say in peds you have to be silly, but let's be honest, you have to be silly in adults yeah. too. Yeah. Adults like to be yeah. silly. So you have to keep it light and you have to, you have to show them success because they're becoming aware at this point. Before this, they were not. They were not aware of anything that was around them. And all of a sudden they're starting to wake up in a very different brain and a very different body. And just eye gaze for yes and no is hard. Why is that hard? Why is it hard for me to look at a card? That's stupid, right? And so you have to kind of step back and realize like, Yes, I've done this with patients and I know that this is not going to be the end and it's fine and they're good, but they've never done this before. <laughs> this is their first time having a brain injury. So just kind of again, patience is such a key with this population. And and again, I like going back to the patient I was talking about earlier. I remember sitting in a room with him. Once we started looking at one ball, then we got to a red and a green. But because of his dystonia we had to put it on one side of a treatment room and the other side of the treatment room because he had to turn his head all the way to the right and then fight, 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 turn all the way to the left. Um, But that was the only way that we could distinguish without wondering, was that his dystonic movement? What was that? Because he had these like really wild dystonic movements, but he could fight them to do a, a very gross head turn. But we got a yes and a no that way. And that was huge for him, you know? And so you just, it has to be, you know, I think that's why there's not a lot of like treatment protocols for this population because it really is so patient specific. You might have a patient who has no upper extremity use. That's tough because people are not used to using their legs to communicate, you know? They're not, that we gesture with our hands. We don't gesture with our feet. And so- you know, you might be working closely with PT, trying to get them to activate a switch with their knee. But then, you you know, you have to be so careful because a lot of times, you know, they've got these movement patterns and did they activate that or was it just an accidental movement? So again, you have to talk with your team over and over and over and just be such good communicators. And we're the communication experts, so we should be driving this. Um, another soapbox, but um, you know, you need to talk to your OT like, Hey, do they have the fine motor for a squeeze switch? Do they have the gross motor to reach? Do they have horrible nystagmus and we can't do eye gaze, you know, like you have to just trust Trust is huge in any team, obviously, but trust is really big in these cases because you have to trust your teammates that they know the patient as well as you do. And I think sometimes, you know, as a younger clinician, especially I would get very like defensive if somebody was like, Oh, well, they talked in my session. I'm like, well, that's not possible because they don't talk with me and I'm the speech therapist. So surely they're not believe people (laughs) because inconsistency is the one consistent thing with this population. They're going to do something for somebody else that they don't do for you and vice versa. 
the other thing, I, and I think this this is more pediatrics than adults, but I swear patients do the gross motor stuff with speech. They talk with OT and they do the fine motor stuff with PT. <laughs> they just are like, oh, I see your scope of practice and I raise it what I feel yes. like doing right now. <laughs> so it's just so true. But um, anywho, so <laughs> in these minimally conscious patients, you know, you're going to be really and you co-treatment if you can work a co-treatment in it is gold because you might need to have the person out of their wheelchair because maybe they're just comfy cozy in that wheelchair and they just fall right asleep so maybe you need to work with pt and they're sitting the patient up and you're having them do eye gaze or maybe you're working with ot and they're working on something with their hand and you're working on having them follow directions that kind of thing. So co-treatment is so, so, so important in these situations. So that's minimally conscious. Um, the post-traumatic confusional state, um, I think we're all used to. <laughs> I think um, this is what we think of when we think of big brain injuries, right? These are the people who are you know, starting to swear at you and they're starting, they're really starting to emerge. They don't necessarily remember things are not necessarily forming new memories. It's like a Rancho four-ish, um, but they, they're awake. By golly, they're awake. <laughs> um, they're very disoriented. They're very confused, but they are following. They can, I should say, they can follow commands more consistently. They can attend to things more consistently. Again, attention is something that we're looking for when they're emerging, like, can they actually attend to something? Um, but those are, you know, these are the patients who you're going to be gently reorienting and then bringing back to, okay, well, we're going to do this thing <laughs> that we were doing, you know, in this stage, I feel like one of the mistakes that I have made and I see made in treatment with this stage is trying to do higher level tasks when they're not ready for it. So you want to do a more rote task with them. You want to do something that's maybe more routine. You might be, you know, it just, it, and it's going to be very, again, very patient dependent. You know, it might be sorting laundry and, and that feels more OT-ish, but it can totally be our wheelhouse too. Um, and it's so important to work with your team so that nobody's toes get stepped on because with these patients, a lot of times we're doing the same things because they're not doing a lot. And so when we get something that we find out that they're doing consistently, everybody jumps on it, right? So I might be, you know, it's especially, you know, it's, and this is not a thing that I thought ever thought I would be doing when I was in graduate school a million years ago, but I might be transferring a patient to the floor and sitting on the floor with them because that's where they are the best. But, um, you know, so talking ahead of time and making sure that nobody's feelings get hurt and nobody, you know, Hey, I was going to do this with this patient. Is that addressing any of your goals? Do you want to co-treat? Do you, how can I address something that's a little bit different from you? That kind of thing, because it is so important for that team dynamic to say strong because that benefits the patients um, and they can feel it. Oh my gosh. Patients are like horses. You know, they can sense when something's off, they know, and they pick right up on it. So um, that's, you know, you want to, so then if you're getting into that post-traumatic confusion, doing things that they know how to do and that they can maybe, maybe get into some kind of automatic thing 
and then kind of working in like, okay, I'm working on attention with them. Can I distract from, from that? And then we can get back to it, that kind of thing. And it's, it is, it's slow and steady and it's, it is slow going, but it's really, really good for when you just kind of, you know, sometimes with brain injuries, we see this like huge curve, right? Like this really steep curve. And that's so fun when we see that, you know, I love those patients too. They're some of my favorite patients I've ever had, but DOC patients are a much slower curve. And so we just kind of have to adjust our expectations for what recovery is going to look like in terms of time. We are not saying, I have seen DOC patients make incredible recoveries, but it's not at the same pace most of the time. You know, you can have somebody wake up from a coma and just go do their thing. But there's a reason there are news stories about that because it doesn't happen that often. Um, And so I think just kind of checking your expectations and saying, okay, so what are my long-term goals for this person? By the time they leave my setting, what do I want them to be able to do? Okay, how do I get, you know, and even just setting it down like, okay, so what are the barriers to that? Let's address this. Kind of doing cognitive therapy with yourself, right? (laughs) So saying, okay, the barriers are X, Y, and Z. They can't pay attention worth a crap. So if they can't pay attention, they can't do anything because they can't form new memories and they can't do executive function tasks and they can't walk without walking out into traffic. And then, you know, so saying, okay, so I need to, I need to just hardcore hit attention because it can be very overwhelming because everything is affected. And, you know, you you look at these patients, you're like, well, yeah, they have everything I treat. (laughs) You know, they've got swallowing issues. They've got, Exactly. You know, they've got cognitive issues. They've got language issues. They've got motor speech issues. Okay. But you have to like, take it back and say, what is their biggest barrier right now? Okay. Well, let's hit it hard because the research says that if we do really intensive task-based neuro recovery programs that are focused on a specific task, they're going to get better much faster than if we are just kind of like, well, today I'm going to work on their dysarthria and tomorrow I'm going to work on their swallowing. The next day, you know, like, no, we got to pick something that you want to get the most bang for your buck with. So that's, that is, you know, treatment in a nutshell. Awesome. (laughs) So a lot of times with disorder of consciousness, we're going to work closely with the medical team too, because um, there are neurostimulants that can be used in this population to try to chemically wake them up to kind of jumpstart their brain, if you will. Um, and so what I've found, and actually I've, we've actually been having a pretty robust conversation about this recently on my unit. Um, there seems to be kind of clusters of physicians who prefer one neurostimulant over another neurostimulant. One of the most commonly ones, commonly used ones that I've seen is amantadine. It's, I, it is fairly well researched um, and there have been, have been blind, you know, double blind studies about it and the, and the patients do show a better recovery on amantadine than not. So basically it, um, trying to think of the, that's what, so 
it doesn't have, especially for a pediatric population, it doesn't have a lot of side effects, which is great. You can't use it in end-stage renal disease and things like that. But um, And it's fairly quick acting. So in two to four hours, you can start to see. Huh. Yeah. So the day you start and then, you know, they have to get it up to a therapeutic dose and everything like that. But, you know, I was talking with one of the PTs that I work with and it's funny, like the, our patients who are on a mangerine, it's like, they go from asleep to like, Hey, <laughs> like their eyes are open and they're like, ready. They're like, Oh, here I am. Like, okay. Now I can work with you. Amazing. Yeah. So another one that I've seen a lot is actually uh methylphenidate or Ritalin. So, which is not a thing that people think about a lot, but it, the nice thing about that is it is quick. It's like you give it to them and they're awake. If it's going to work, it's going to work. You have to be careful because sometimes these are patients who do have dysautonomia. And so you can get tachycardia, you can get you know things like that, but these are the things that that's why they're in the hospital, right? <laughs> so they can be monitored for all of those things. Um, bromocryptine. There is some evidence that it can help with dysautonomia and um, can be a neurostimulant. There are some physicians who use that instead of amantadine. It seems to just be a physician preference thing. And that's really all I can speak to because I don't understand it much more than that. But yeah, um, Cinemet is actually used. I And I've seen that used even in pediatrics. I've seen it used. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, for someone who's taken a hit to the basal ganglia, because um, yeah, it's funny. Sense. Right, yeah. right. Huh. So I worked with a patient once who, I mean, it was fascinating. He would walk into walls. He would just keep, you know, this is, uh, I think he was 15 at the time, you know, and we so initially when we started him on the cinemat, he couldn't move at all. And then we put him on cinemat and he was like, ready to go. So, I mean, it can, it's very, you know, it again, it's patient dependent, but some, that was actually one and it, it came out of the team where we were in a team meeting and I said, you know, he feels like my Parkinson's patients I used to work with. I was like, he doesn't, cause like he was talking to me, right? Like he was pretty intact, especially considering the hit his brain had taken, but he couldn't move, you know, and he couldn't initiate things. And they started him on, and because of that comment, and you, the physicians are an important part of this team because, <laughs> and physicians who trust their therapists are a very important part of this team. But um, they started him on cinema, and yeah, sure enough, he started going. So there are a whole bunch of other ones. Believe it or not, Ambien is sometimes used as a stimulant. I do not understand how that works at all, but I know there are case studies on it. So um, yeah, if you want to learn more about that, you know, <laughs> feel yeah. free to look up those studies. I'm sure they're fascinating. But so there are a bunch of different medications that can be used to assist with the um, patients waking up and making them available for therapy. Yeah. So yeah. Because awesome. that's really what these patients need. They need therapy. Yeah. They need us. <laughs> well, let me ask you, Rebecca, is this like, you know, coming out of grad school where you like, I want to be an SLP and I want to work with this population? I didn't know this population existed. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, I had no idea. And 
like, and I know that I had a placement at a skilled nursing facility when I was in grad school and my supervisor was like, we don't work with those people because they're just going to be bedridden. Right. Like now I'm like, yes, we do. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. but um, you know, I had no, no idea. Um, honestly, I learned the most about this population from other disciplines yeah, and working with them, um, working with PTs and OTs and everything like that, because it is such an all hands on deck. You're rarely working with another SLP with the, this population. You're working with, <laughs> it's all hands on deck sometimes literally because some, depending on the size of the patient, they might take a lot of hands to move and to, and, that's the other thing. If you're going to work with this population, you've got to be comfortable touching patients and moving them and stuff like that. I work with a PT who jokes with me and said, when you guys go to ASHA, do they make you raise your right hand and say, I will not transfer patients? Oh my <laughs> so, gosh. Yeah. I said, yes. And then there's a whole bunch of rehab SLPs in the back going, mm-mm. Nope. <laughs> I said, no, that is not how we are. <laughs> we like to be hands-on. <laughs> but I think there is this kind of like idea that speeches, right? How many of us are called speeches are just sitting back in our open-toed shoes and are like, oh, I'm not going to touch them. But that's that's not the case with this population. It's not the case in IPR. And honestly, it's not the case in pediatrics. So um, yeah, but it's, uh, you do have to be, if you are somebody who does not like to get dirty, sometimes literally um, get your hands dirty, this is not the population for you. <laughs> but yeah. But it's very rewarding when they when they go home. Yeah, I, I just I, I every time I talk to you, I feel like I hear another crazy cool story that I just would love to be a little fly on your shoulder. Yeah, I've seen some crazy ones. I know, I know. <laughs> so. what, what about like the research in this area, Rebecca? Like, do we have I, I mean, I'm assuming the answer is no, because we don't have a lot of research in many areas of SLP. But I feel like this is just such a such a small niche thing. Yes. So yes, <laughs> in a nutshell, yes. But um, so what I usually do with any kind of, and in pediatrics, I have to do this a lot because a lot of the disorders that we work with, there are, you know, six diagnosed in the whole world. And so it's not a thing that there's a lot of, there's not a lot of data to back up what you're doing. Right. Right. But so I have to go to other disciplines. A lot of times, you know, I might be going to the neuropsych literature. I might be going to the medical literature. I might be going to the neurology literature. And I'm not saying I'm going to understand all of it, but I'm going to glean enough from it that I can kind of say, okay, so this is on this patient's MRI, they had damage to this, 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 and this. That was the primary damage. So that makes me think that they're going to have trouble with X, Y, and Z. You know, I know I keep talking about like thalamic damage and basal ganglia damage, but that's because those are often involved in these populations. Um, you know, a lot of times it's diffuse axonal injury, right? So it's the brain shifted within the skull and really it broke those axons. And so you have kind of a diffuse brain damage, but if you have a really good radiologist, there is, there's just, it's invaluable. If you have a really good radiologist who, because sometimes you get the radiology report, and it's like diffuse axonal injury. It's like, great, but where? 
<laughs> I know it's diffuse. I know what diffuse means. I know it means throughout, but I know there's focal damage in there too, because I'm seeing it in my patient. So if you get a really good radiology report, it can be so helpful because it'll pinpoint you know, bilateral frontal, right parietal, bilateral thalamic, bilateral basal ganglia. And then it'll also list the structures that are relatively intact. So that'll also help you kind of say, okay, so in theory, they should be able to, you know, fill in the blank given where their brain was relatively undamaged. So that's, and so, yeah, I feel like I almost go back to undergrad and like, anatomy and physiology and I'm doing those you know the the brain tracks and I'm looking at or is it an upper motor neuron it's a low you know I'm looking at all of that kind of thing and I think one of the things that's kind of fun about this population and brain you know brain injury in general is is my jam it's what I do but you really every single one is a puzzle and you have to kind of pull on the true evidence-based care, right? So if you're truly doing evidence-based care and evidence-based practice, you're pulling on your knowledge and your expertise as someone who has worked with this, you're pulling on the literature, but that might not be speeches literature. That might be, it might even be PT's literature. I mean, I definitely read PT literature far more often than my professors probably would have liked, but, you know, and it might be, neuropsych is like, a gold mine in this area because that's that's who's been doing the research on this kind of thing and there are some fascinating things like central deafness and things like that that can come out of that as well and then you know you're you've got all of the evidence from the literature your knowledge the patient everything and you're tr- having true patient centered care then and you know and sometimes there's not a lot of evidence because a brain injury in general is a very, very heterogeneous diagnosis. You know, I, I remember a neurosurgeon that I talked to once said that, you know, he can look at a dozen brain scans that look exactly the same and they have a dozen just wildly different outcomes. And we don't really know why yet. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very unexplored area when compared with the rest of the body, you know, we know a lot about the rest of the body and we still are learning a lot about the rest of the body, right? The brain though is still like, what? (laughs) So we're still very much learning, you know, I mean, why is it that somebody can have a left MCA stroke and have relatively intact language and somebody else has a global aphasia? It's the same thing with these patients. You know, it's like, why does one person with a DOC end up going back to, you know, I had, I had a patient who went back to work as a computer engineer. Yeah. And then there are some who never wake up, you know, and it's like, why? I don't know. But, you know, the person who figures that out is a lot smarter and has a much higher, higher pay grade than I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Oh, I loved all of this, Rebecca. This was so eye-opening, informative. This was wonderful. Do you have any any final thoughts to share with people about this population? I guess the big takeaway for me is don't give up on them. Yeah. You know, just because 
they're not doing a lot now doesn't mean they're not going to. Yeah. So awesome. they'll surprise you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about if this is an area that, you know, cause I, I can just envision I'm going to get a influx of emails or messages from people like, you know, I work in a big trauma center, but we don't have a specific program like this. You know, how would you encourage them to set something up like that? So what I have found um, is that hospitals that do have programs like this really want to talk to other hospitals who want to set it up. So what I would do is I would encourage people to contact other hospitals who have these programs and figure out how they can work together to kind of start their own program, you know, because they will be able to tell you, like, I, I remember when we started our, you know, it's just, they'll be able to tell you the pitfalls, right? Like this was a terrible mistake or like, make sure you get the families involved in the ICU because you, if you have an absent family in the ICU, they're going to be absent in rehab and all of a sudden you don't have a discharge disposition, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I would say contact other hospitals, you know, I love when I get emails out of the blue from somebody from another, you know, it's, it's just great to, to interact with people and talk with people who are really passionate about this. And I feel like this is, you know, this is not a huge moneymaker for hospitals. It's not proprietary. Nobody's going to be like, well, we made this. You can't, no, they want you to do this. You know, we want you to do this. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Awesome. That would be my recommendation. Awesome. Well, thank you. This was so helpful. I'm glad. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about this yeah. stuff. It's important. It is. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Teresa. To download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills and to Marissa Hendrickson for managing all the things behind the scenes. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.